do you think that people are going to be interested in seeing my pasty, flabby, 59-year-old self playing the game? <laughs> do you it, know man. what we should do is get your uh, portrait modded into the game. <laughs> you should play as old Redfield. <laughs> <laughs> Joe White, Chris Redfield playing as myself. Let's do it. Let's make that happen. You could use your stomach to crush those boulders. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> you went there. This is Katie O'Hagan, the voice of Mia Winters in Resident Evil Biohazard. And when I'm not babysitting temperamental bioweapons, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. Can you see that area behind me beneath the red tinted sky? That is what's left of Raccoon City. Our platoon is cut off. No survivors found. gonna die wait don't shoot down i lost all my men because of her all is lost cries of agony Stars. unity breeds power Welcome to the Crimson Head Elder Podcast for a very special survival horror episode. Our special guest tonight has starred in two classic survival horror productions. He portrayed our favorite UBCS mercenary, Mikhail Victor, and the rather nasty Dr. Nathaniel Bard in the remake of Resident Evil 3, and Lieutenant Scott Gorman in James Cameron's truly iconic film, nominated for seven Academy Awards, the film voted by Empire Magazine as the best sequel of all time, Aliens. William Hope, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. And quite amazing that we're doing this over thousands of miles. Thank you. <laughs> Again, my name is Joe White. I was the actor for Chris Redfield in Resident Evil Remake uh, way back in uh, the early Cretaceous. And also from the Crimson Head team, we have the Oracle Dragon. Hello, everyone. Sonny Bauer. Reporting in. How is everybody today? And the captain of the team, Mr. George Trevor. Good evening. Although I do keep saying we're socialists. We, we don't have a leader. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. You're the Crimson Head Tsar. Welcome, and William. Great. Thank you so much. Guys, it's not a universe that I'm hugely familiar with. Are these characters out of the RE universe or these are just your alter egos? Well, alter egos primarily but paul's uh george trevor is a character out of uh resident evil universe and that's my nerd name yeah it's a character from resident <laughs> evil, <sorry>. nerd. <laughs> not a very interesting one william he's an he's an architect he's not like the hero he's a, he's an architect excellent it's, it's great to hear you guys this is exciting. I'm talking to Gorman from Aliens. My God. <laughs> yeah, Paul and I were talking. Thank you. Uh, it's a, a remarkable picture in that I still get, I get grandparents and I get grandchildren and I get everything in between people going, oh my God, it still uh, carries a heavy punch for those people who like 
that kind of genre, I guess. It, it is amazing. The um, I, I looked at your questions, and I can't say, you know, I'm not a film critic or a, a kind of a cultural observer. I'm just a ordinary actor. But the correlations and genesis of the whole survival horror genre springing out of a lot of the alien stuff is absolutely crystal clear. It's um, having started to think about it and look at it, I thought, oh my God, this is, they're like first cousins. It's amazing. Absolutely. You know, I was, I was thinking that aliens, alien, aliens, alien three, I'm not sure that all of the films are, will, will be poster children for the genre forever, but definitely, definitely the movie that you're in is one of the progenitors of the thread that runs through all of what we do, all of this, the horror genre, horror survival genre, I should say, is definitely predicated on few films and Aliens is, is one of those. And it will be a classic forever. It's one of those films that you'll be able to watch a hundred years from now and people will still say, wow. Which is remarkable. And that's all down to Jim Cameron, obviously. But I, yeah. I can remember reading the script for the first time and, um, also at the very first screening, cast and crew screening, and uh, really struck at how fresh and amazing, because at numerous points, you think, oh my God, this has got to be over. This is so <laughs> the climax. This is so finishing. This is how are they going to get out of this? And it happens about six times. You think yeah. you're at the end of the movie. Oh, no. And it just ratchets up, ratchets up, which is a, a remarkable achievement. And at the time, that was kind of almost unprecedented, I think, in the intensity and the persistence of, you know, Terminator, I guess, the other one, the first yeah. Terminator. That was yeah. definitely the thing, wasn't it? You think, oh, my God, he's not dead yet. And I guess that's a kind of template, which is now almost taken for granted. It's so true what you say, because I, I was watching the film, obviously as part of my homework for today's interview. I watched the film with my son. It was the first time he's seen it. Within the first hour or so, there's this hope that they're going to escape. And, and my son, obviously, clearly realising that the film's no way finished, looks at me and frowns and says, so it ends now, presuming that they're safe. That escape plan is destroyed and then another one. And he thinks, oh, so they're going to get out now. And yeah. Yeah. Cliffhanger, cliffhanger, cliffhanger. And you think, oh, come on. This has really got to be finished now. Oh, no. <laughs> It's like this wonderful roller coaster that just keeps going and, and then like, you know, it, it gives you this new part and it's like, oh, well, that was exciting. Oh, is it over now? Oh, my God, we got more. Yeah. The tagline for the film should be just wait. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear a screenwriting breakdown of how the act structure builds to accomplish that, because, you know, there's got to be a ratcheting up of tension and then a release and then a, a higher ratcheting up of tension and a release and a, yet a higher ratcheting up of tension. If you look at the spine of most films, you know, it does that two or three times and then you've got your third act and you're out. I would love yeah. to see someone really knowledgeable about screenplay structure break this down. Yeah. I think it's got to be like five or six of them. I can distinctly remember thinking, oh, my God, this has <laughs> got to end soon. But oh, yeah. no, you've got another 45 minutes of ratcheting, ratcheting. And uh, that is Jim's one of his pieces of magic. Now a legend. But um, I still think Aliens is his greatest picture for lots of different reasons. Joe, I um, I loved your tagline, but I think I'm, I'm probably going to stick with in space. No one can hear you scream. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. They're one of the best pitch lines ever. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then this time it's war. It's not a bad sequel. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Oracle, do you want to take the first question? 
Sorry, I was getting a drink and the chickens are going off outside. <laughs> I just keep looking at my window thinking, you guys better not get outside my window and start cackling again. <laughs> Why, not? Why not? Let them cackle. How many you got? About 30. Beautiful. Wow. So you Ooh. sell your eggs? We try to, but my brother mostly eats them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big brother. <laughs> oh, yeah, he is pretty big. <laughs> 30 chickens. They keep him 30 chickens busy. That's a big brother. Yeah. Wow. And we have Woo. four ducks. Four ducks. Duck eggs as well? Yep. Wow. <laughs> One of them lays a really big egg, and it has two yolks in it, so that's always a good treat. Awesome. Oh, there you go. Awesome. Welcome to the Survival Horror Podcast. (laughs) What does work great is Aaron has these wonderful noises of the crickets, which really does work well with the atmosphere of Resident Evil. Love it. Lay some down later, Paul. Aaron, when you walk into the coop, do you get the eggs? Do you ever pretend that you're walking into the egg room on the the aliens ship? (laughs) Depending on a hen who's sitting in there, she'll try and attack you like a freaking face hugger. (laughs) Well, there you go. There's a correlation there. (laughs) Okay, go for it. Go for it, Oracle. All right, the question. You turned down a major role in Stanley Kubrick's film Full Metal Jacket for the role of Scott Gorman in Aliens. What was your thinking behind that decision? Yeah, so Stanley Kubrick at the time was generally acknowledged as one of the greatest filmmakers, Mm -hmm. arguably, of all time. So he was like, you know, a giant, a legend. To go Mm -hmm. and work for Stanley Kubrick was um, a dream come true, to put it mildly. You don't get to be in a Kubrick movie easily unless you're super famous or, you know, Tom Cruise or Kirk Douglas or whoever. I went through a very long audition process and you never meet Stanley. You met Leon Vitale, his right hand guy. And it was arduous. You know, it was tough. The audition, I think I went back four times and each time was at least an hour one-on-one working with Leon and being filmed and stuff. And you had to learn a whole lot of dialogue. So I'm really, and I'd been doing a play at the time about a Vietnam vet, and I was very pumped and very military and short hair and all that stuff. So anyway, after about probably seeing Leon over a course of probably two or three weeks, he said, rang up my agent, said, we really, um, uh, Stanley loves William. We wanted to be on the picture, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it was just, it was a dream come true because this was going to be his next major Vietnam movie. And I thought, yeah, this is as cool a job as you could possibly get. And then uh, my agent rang me after I accepted this and said, oh, by the way, can you go and see this new filmmaker about a science fiction movie? I think it's a sequel to Alien. Have you seen Alien? Of course I'd seen Alien. And I said, uh, I don't want to go and see. Why do I want to be in a science fiction movie when I can work for Stanley Kubrick? She said, don't be such an asshole. (laughs) Get down there and go and see this guy. And I thought, yeah, okay. So I went down to meet uh, Jim Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd, his then wife and executive producer of Aliens and Terminator Mm -hmm. at uh, 20th Century Fox in uh, Soho Square. I wasn't blasé, but I just thought, yeah, sure, okay, go and do this and just be professional. And they handed me the script. We talked for about 20 minutes, half an hour, and they handed me the script and said, okay, disappear, go and learn this and come back and we want to put you on camera. And they gave me um, Billy Paxton's role, Hudson. They gave me Hudson sides. Oh, Oh, really? And I just got down outside the uh, building and somebody came running out and said, come back, come back. We changed our mind. Give me those and take these. And they gave me Gorman's. (laughs) sides 
And I went and sat for, I think, a couple of hours looking at this stuff in Soho Square and then went back up and we shot it. And I think it was like a matter of no more than two days, maybe the next day. They rang my agent and Mary Selway, who was like uh, yeah. the top casting director in the UK at the time, rang my agent and said, you're not going to believe this, Sally, but they want to offer Bill one of the leads. I was the first person cast after Sigourney. Wow. Jim is about the only person who's going to know that, but I seem to remember that. And the reason I was cast was when I went back to shoot to lay stuff down on video for Gail and Jim. They were bickering away. It was really funny. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, he said, so what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go and do a movie about Vietnam with Stanley Kubrick. And he, he fell off his chair. He just like, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick? He'd been st I think Jim had been studying physics at university. Uh -huh. He was going to be, you know, super smart guy. And he saw Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. Sure. And basically said, fuck physics. I'm going to go make movies. Right. <laughs> and then he went to work for Roger Corman. So it was Stanley Kubrick who changed him into cinema. He thought, if Kubrick wants him, I'm going to have him. Wow. Huh. So the question is, how do you make up your mind? The point is, when you have a contract with Stanley Kubrick, unless you're the star, you do not have a start and finish day. And you do not negotiate money. He says, here's the money. Uh -huh. You're going to uh -huh. use start and we shoot until it's finished. Yeah. So you could theoretically be still shooting 18 months later, yeah, I, on again, off again, wow. on again, off again. I've heard he's obsessed. He would obsessively take retake after retake. Oh, I think it was in regard to The Shining. Tom Cruise, uh, they all say it. He would take upwards of 60, 70 takes on a very, very simple shot. Yeah. And would break people. There is a reason and kind of logic behind that, which was essentially Kubrick. I remember he almost broke Tom Cruise was the story. You know, how do you break Tom Cruise? I mean, he's as tough as you get as a, as a movie star and as an actor. Yeah. Wow. The point is, so that's what I was faced with with Kubrick, which was hugely exciting to do this movie about Vietnam. You'd think, yeah, we're going to go and be Marines. But then they gave me the script of Aliens to read, and I just could not put it down. I, I, I stayed up to four o'clock in the morning. You couldn't stop reading it. Everything that you saw on the screen was written on the page. Amazing, man. So this was before digital technology. So there was no technology. And the only hesitation I had about the script was that uh, I thought, how are they going to do these, the drop ships, the, you know, the yeah. crashing on the planet's surface? It's going to look like Thunderbirds. It's going to look like, you know, <laughs> you know, puppets on strings. But other than that, it was the finest script I'd ever read. You could not put it down. It was absolutely just like the experience of seeing it. You could <sighs> not turn over to the next page. And nothing was added. Nothing was taken away. In those days, before digital, you had to lock a script and you think, okay, now we're going to shoot that because it was cost effective. So the point is, I read this script and I thought, this is a major role in an absolutely rocket ship ride. Yeah. And so making a decision between a non-definite contract with Kubrick on minimum money to do a major role in what was then a huge blockbuster, a huge Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah. And as far as I was concerned, it was a no-brainer. Wow. It's not even a decision. It wasn't a decision. I read the script. I thought, I have to do this. Wow. That's the devil putting both hands out and saying, pick one. Yeah. But it wasn't even a choice. There was no, there was no choice there. You didn't get a script. Stanley didn't give you a script. There was no script.
That's really fascinating. (laughs) Just to read the script for the first time, and just from a professional point of view, knowing how ingrained in cinema history, even by that time, the first film was. So it just must be whilst you're experiencing the actual narrative but also to know that you're going to be a part of that it just must be just an incredible experience just that very first stage yeah it was uh surreal the kind of thing that it doesn't sink in first of all the fact that it was mary selway and the fact that jim was a complete unknown apart terminator was a fabulous film but the studios didn't really they thought yeah it's a nice little movie jim was unknown Gale was unknown, apart from Terminator. So it was kind of, it was a risk, but uh, the script was immaculate. And then when when we started seeing the artwork, which Jim drew himself, it was just uh, deeper and deeper. I'm looking at some of the storyboards from the movie right now, and they're amazing. I know a thing about storyboards. I've worked in the animation industry for 25 years and have seen every level of storyboarding. These are just off the hook. Yeah, they're drawn by Cameron. They're all, his, they're all his own drawings. What is it that impresses you so much, though? Is it like the, the, the detail? Yeah, the completeness, the detail, the level of artistry. <laughs> I mean, I didn't realize he was such a, such a good draftsman. Yeah. The thing that blew me away, the thing that's to this day still blows me away, Joe, is that we saw some of the storyboards. And you know the scene really near the end when the queen is like attacking Sigourney. She's in the power loader and she's got that blowtorch going and the teeth are going. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, you think, fuck, fuck, it's just this cold, it's just get out. But you can't even think it's so intense. Jim had drawn that picture in complete detail. There was no computers, nothing. And the picture that he drew became the reality in a movie. Oh you think to God. take the picture that is in your head and make it reality in front of a camera without any computers whatsoever, to me... That is the sign of a profound artist on so many levels. Absolutely. Yeah. It's incredible. That's, that's a whole nother level. That it's is, like yeah. it's like perfectionism realized. It's it's wow. It's amazing. He's a Renaissance man. Jim Cameron's a Renaissance man. There's nothing he can't do anyway. Yeah. What's interesting on that point is that, you know, Ridley Scott, who returned to the films from the first one with Prometheus and Alien Covenant, he shies away, doesn't he, from CGI? And he tries, you know, still to keep that magic alive and he builds all the sets. You wonder if some of that magic that you're referring to gets lost in the over-reliance that many films have on CGI. I totally agree. I think um, there is a, a huge... A real discussion to be had about the speed and facility of digital technology yeah and the prevalence of mediocre movies that are made yeah pre-digital technology people had to lock everything down because time is money and if you didn't know exactly what you were doing you were just going to get there and burn money it's a very expensive business making movies I was astonished to learn that Ridley started shooting Prometheus before he knew the ending. And you think, how on earth can you do that? (laughs) Unless, you know, make up your mind right up at the last second and just CGI the hell out of it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Joe, sorry, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to put you out of a job. Joe's a 3D modeler. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, You know, yeah. no, but there's, you know, it's not black and white like that. It's getting the balance between the storylines. What is a, a high quality narrative and um, how much of a balance of CGI do you use on it? 
I think there's sort of a loss of authenticity with the performances from actors if they're just completely like surrounded by a blue screen room and it's like okay now you have to interact with this and you're not going to see what it is and you don't know what it's going to do but you just have to try to respond to, to nothing yeah. so to speak but in a way this leads to some of the questions we've been looking at which is you know how were the experiences different between you know what was it like to rehearse the scenes with the re universe or any other alien isolation of this stuff Okay, so you're in a volume, you're in a, a warehouse with uh -huh. a lot of very small cameras and you're wearing the, you know, the suit. Uh -huh. and right. uh, yeah. that's it and you got plywood and you got multiple takes and you're a very small cog in the machine right and you don't really get much atmosphere or understanding of what it is you're doing but if you dress up as a character and you walk onto a set that looks like a planet's surface with drop ships that are full-sized and constructed it's an entirely different thing but that is the difference between movies and computer games video games right. are a What's the percentage? 80, 90% post-production? Yeah. So it's a very, it's a different um, part of the industry. How do you think that has uh, changed techniques that actors are using today? The difference between shooting a, a largely practical film and shooting on a green screen where you, you know, the, the dragon that you're talking to is a tennis ball on the end of a stick. Actors today have to prepare for that. How do you think that that has evolved? In my opinion, it all comes down to one thing. It comes down to the quality of the writing. I started as a theater actor, and I'm still the theater actor. The training of being a theater actor and the skills is that a huge amount, the vast majority of your process comes from the text. It comes from the writing. It yeah. comes from who are you, who is this person you're playing with, where have you come from, etc., etc. So if the writing is full of truth, and artistry and um, beauty or mm -hmm. power or uh, <laughs> psychosis or whatever it is, you have got this rock solid or flexible trampoline to bounce into. Whereas if you're looking at a dragon's nostril, a green tennis ball, and you're saying, the dragons are coming out of the woods, run! It's a bit different. And so it all comes down to, and this is to go back to Aliens, the script was immaculate. The character yeah. arcs, the narrative, the structure, this was a real roller coaster, white knuckle, nail biter. That's why I think it's one of the great movies that Jim has made, is because every single character is fully fleshed out. You could write a backstory about Wierzbowski, any of these people, and his writing just nailed it. And when you have that, when actors are given that, you can take off. You can yeah. fly. Right, yeah. Right. And, and if it's mediocre writing, well, you can sometimes find magic. And if the rest is green screen and kind of studio stuff, it's pretty unlikely that the atmos and the kind of charge, the emotional charge and the feeling and the blast as an audience to watch it. I mean, think, okay, what's a great CGI movie that we love and really delivers? How many CGI heavy? I'm sorry, all respect to DC and the Avengers and all this stuff. I'm allergic to them. I can't. Yeah. Emotionally, I don't invest. And I can't suspend my disbelief. I'm going, there's Bob Downey standing in a big space looking at tennis balls. And yeah. Him, the world is collapsing. And I think, no, it's not. <laughs> it's, and it, it it's, really it's true. He's yeah. thinking about his coffee. You know, <laughs> the cost of filmmaking today 
requires CGI. You can't create some of the atmospheres that are as luxurious as uh, are required in, in certain scripts practically anymore. Because, you know, you think about DeMille's, the huge city that he built back yeah. at, in the 20s or 30s, thousands and thousands of actors. You couldn't make those movies today. You couldn't do it. No. Not practically. You'd have to do it with CG. Mm-hmm. That's what George Lucas says, isn't it, about the uh, the prequels that he had to wait, you know, all this time because he's just simply the narrative in his head and, and the vision that he wanted to put on the screen, he just wasn't able to do until the technology and CGI caught up. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, looking, then, and then look what looking, happened. Looking, yeah, exactly. Looking at, yes. Looking at RE3 now, my God, the shifts since I've been doing mocap and, you know, video games, it's moving at speed. Oh, yeah. Well, the quality is getting so much better. And now I think the script writing and the acting side of it, the narrative side of it, is what needs to be developed to exactly. come into balance. Yes. You know? That's one thing I could, I could take note of, uh, William, is that something that really uh, took with me in this game was how strong the characters were. And that's something that I've wanted from video games for a very long time, is strong performances from the actors and uh, strong writing and directing. And it really comes through between the chemistry that you have with the rest of the UBCS and Jill. That's an ensemble thing. That's to do with writing. It's to do with how much time the actors are given. Good work. Your reputation is well deserved. Get inside. The subway's about to leave. Carlos, Tyrell, you have your orders. You need to go back out into the city and find Nathaniel Bart. This isn't the last ride out of town, right? Do not worry. Once the civilians are safe, the train will be back. You'll need to find this scientist. His vaccine research could save us all. What's that amazing uh, kind of revolutionary one? It was, what is it, Red? Red Red Dead Redemption. Redemption, yeah. Didn't that take personal narrative to a whole new level? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, see, the thing is, we've got to a point now where we can do anything visually. But what remains as the basis of any communicative process is the story. That's why we do what we do. That's telling stories is why we are actors, is why we are filmmakers, And without that process being fully fleshed out like a Jim Cameron movie or like a Stanley Kubrick, I mean, even though he does it a little more ad hoc, it's a special gift to be able to do that ad hoc. It all boils down to a story. A good story could be told with two matchstick figures. It doesn't matter what the graphics are. But just yesterday, a video was released demonstrating the new PlayStation 5 Unreal Engine 5. Look at the demo for the new PlayStation graphics. It's indistinguishable from real life and the blurred line between cinematic filmmaking and games is, in my opinion, now demolished. You can do a video game now that looks absolutely lifelike. My one question is the eyeball and the emotion and fluctuation on skin tones and the face. To me, that's always the the last frontier. Yeah. Yeah. The eyes are always the most important aspect, and that's the um, uncanny valley always came down to the eyes. If you look at some of the early all-CGI films that purported to be photoreal, the eyes were always dead, but now they're not. I am serious. If you look at this demo, it's absolutely indistinguishable. So that poses a whole lot of amazing questions, like what happens when the technology can 100% recreate the genuineness of a human figure and the acting? What's the difference? 
I mean, we get into AI territory now, and yes. that's all. Yeah. yeah, it would be a sad day for live action uh, performance. <laughs> that's the day that I, I have to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so throughout a respected and varied career that has seen you also star in Hellbound Hellraiser 2 and build an extensive list of credits across television and theater, you've always remained close to the Alien franchise. Just a few years ago, you narrated audiobook versions of the novels Aliens and Alien Resurrection. What was it like to revisit the character of Gorman and his journey many many years later pretty weird (laughs) (laughs) okay next question um (laughs) yeah because i from time to time read a lot of record a lot of audiobooks because it's really fun and i enjoy it and if you're doing a good book it's really fun so they said oh yeah we really like you to do aliens and i thought oh yeah really Uh, (laughs) and then they gave me the book and i read the book and there are a few things in there you know it's not the movie but it's it's close so as a artist, as an actor, I thought, okay, you're going to start to interpret this? And I thought, no, you can't interpret this. You just have to. I went through the book being in the movie. And yeah. I thought, okay, was, are you going to impersonate Lance? Are you going to impersonate Billy, Michael? No, you've got to go with the essence of it. But it was a very strange experience. This is the thing about um, being audience members and performers. It all comes down to subjectivity. It all comes down to your personal, you know, okay, so you do a theater show or you do a movie and 10 people come out and you say to the 10 people, what do you think? Three people will say, oh, my God, you changed my life. (laughs) Another three people will say, what a crock of shit. I just hate it. (laughs) The other four will go, yeah, it was all right. It doesn't matter what you do. There are always, it's always going to break down. So what are we talking about? It's personal preference. People review the books I read or the movies I'm in and people say, oh my God, it was so, I was, the hairs were on the back of my neck. Baby's going, fuck, this was boring. This was so boring. And he tried to impersonate all the characters. It was terrible. (laughs) You know, and that's the name of the game, I'm afraid. Next question. (laughs) Okay, I'm up next. So, continuing your close relationship with the Alien series, William, you played the role of Groves in the 2010 video game Aliens vs. Predator, in in which you also provided the sound effects for, for the aliens. We'll come on to that. And you're also both the character model and voice of Waits in the 2014 video game Alien Isolation. Spanning a decade of gaming, how did those experiences differ to your work with Capcom on the set of Resident Evil 3? Okay, so we go back to uh, our previous points that we were talking about. If you're doing mocap, performance cap, if you're in a suit with dots all over your face, although I don't think they need that anymore, and you're doing the physical body action of the character, that's one thing. Then you do the voice, and sometimes the voice is used from the day, but mostly it's done in post. Later, you recapture that. Those are two different disciplines, and Aliens versus Predator was a straight voice job. I kind of knew about it, the genre and the kind of mashup of the Aliens Predator thing, but I, I, I knew very little, and they said, and I think Groves, I'm not sure, I think he was British. So I was doing, uh, you know, my best received pronunciation, whatever that word. Um, but, um, I, so it was a straight voice job. It do this, and so it didn't really have much of a resonance or a, an echo from the aliens thing. Although I knew it, to me, it's a text. It's like a tell the story. Who is this guy? He's a power mad scientist who's crazy. 
But uh, Alien Isolation, again, they turned up. Do you want to do this? I thought, yeah, okay. Which is what, you know, this is the life of an actor. Unless you're uh, Leonardo DiCaprio or Jack Nicholson, you're sifting through the four and five star scripts, but beside your bed that's stacked high and you're going, hmm, which one shall I do? (laughs) 98% of actors, you know, did you think that, why did you choose that? An actor is about surviving. Yeah. And so people say, do you want to do this? And you go, let me look at my schedule. I got an <laughs> opening. Yeah, okay, let's do that. And I think Alien Isolation was, do you want to do this? Yeah, why not? Because I hadn't done much mocap then. And I thought, yeah, that'll be fun. I knew the director and she was a really good director. I thought, oh, this will be fun. And we had a gas. We had a lot of fun doing it. I guess motion capture and video games, you're always just a tiny piece of the overall engine. Unless you're playing the lead character and you're in it all the way through. But there's so much other detail and work going on in post-production. The physical actor is just not needed for, not a part of. So you never really see what happens or what it's going to be like until two years later, three years later. So what we did in Japan and Tokyo, the highlight of that entire thing was being in Tokyo which is just the most amazing city. And plus the great company of actors we had. We had a a lot of fun. But what's the difference? Okay, turn up at the warehouse, get into your suit. Here's the script. Now what? Act. Right, right, right. So bring truth, bring charisma, bring humor, bring narrative excellence to this script. Go. Yeah. That's what an actor does. So is it different? Alien Isolation, same job as RE3. Turn up and be as good as you can. There you have it. Okay, let's say you're walking down a beach and you see a really cute girl. What is the first? No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) I think, gosh, I wonder if I can surf as well as she can. (laughs) Go, Joe. Okay. Of all the video games over the years that you have released under the umbrella of the Alien franchise, Alien Isolation captures best the spirit and terror of the first film. Were you shown detailed gameplay for your role as Waits, and have you since played the game? And would you like to see a similar game released that covered the sequel's narrative? Okay, I was not shown anything. I was told the rough outline of what it was, and as far as I'm concerned, the writing is where everything starts, so you see what the situation is. Plus, I knew the director, and she filled this in on the day. I've watched some of the game being played, but I did meet a couple of people. One guy said to me, oh my God, you're in alien isolation. I said, yeah, how is it? Is it good? He said, my girlfriend and I only play it in the day because it's too (laughs) fucking terrifying to play at night. And he was serious. And this guy was like, I don't know, 27. And he was, you know, really saying, this is such a scary game. And what's interesting about Alien Isolation, I gather, is that it's minimalist. It cuts against the blow stuff up, have a million different weapons. It's stealth and it's atmosphere. So I haven't played it, but I understand it's a really good game. If you like those kinds of games. How many days of work was that? I think it was nearly a couple of weeks. Oh, really? Okay. And I think we did a bit of rehearsal, I think. That's unusual. All the video games that I've worked on have, have uh, I've never had rehearsal, never even had, you know, I might have had some some feedback from directors being in the booth. But, uh, you know, I, I worked on one of the Lord of the Rings games uh, and got to play Gimli, the dwarf, which was four days of screaming, no, but tosses are dwarf. I was absolutely <laughs> hoarse after a couple of days, but... Um, and no vocal cords at the end of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, that's why SAG has 
four-hour limits on voiceover sessions. <laughs> Alien Isolation is right up there at the top of my list. I just absolutely love it. And what I tend to do, rather than playing the main game, is because you now have that ability to recreate the Nostromo in just photorealistic, accurate detail. It's just having the ability, you know, almost like virtual reality, just being able to walk around that spaceship from the first film, which is just, for me, is just incredible. Like Joe, I grew up on Space Invaders. And to now to be able to put myself on the Nostromo, you know, in photorealistic detail is incredible. That is amazing. That's almost, that's an actor-free zone. Yeah. That is the difference. Video games have got such an, a range and arsenal of levels of stimulus. you got the weapons, you've got the atmosphere. Yeah. There's so many choices. So it, I guess it depends on what you want, what kind of a, an experience you're looking for. Yeah. And wandering around the Nostromo is just a gas, if that's what you're in the mood for. <laughs> As a modeler, I one of the things that I find most interesting about games is the environment and how it affects you mentally. And I play World of Warcraft. One of the things that I like to do is just not even play the game, but just wander around and, and look at the environments and kind of soak all that in and see how these guys did with uh, how they created the moods and how the music goes into putting you into a certain place. It's a wonderful way to explore something that you can't. Yeah. And wait till we get to virtual reality, which is just around the corner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's going to take us into a whole new universe. Any of you have experienced that? It's outrageous. I yeah. don't want to say it's it's almost druggy. The first time I was uh, allowed to test some of this stuff, I was with um, another lady and they said, you want to try it? And she lasted about 30 seconds. She tore it off her head and said, I can't do this. This is too weird. And it's, it's very, very immersive. It's amazing. All of the atmospherics that you've just been talking about, Joe, is going to be ramped up times 100. Oh, yeah, definitely. You'll have people, I'm sure the addiction factor will be a thing. People will want to leave their virtual worlds after it becomes that real. Yeah, you know, I'm sure that relationships will form. People will probably fall in love with uh, other virtual players. I mean, you know, this is how the human brain works. Well, I played yeah. the virtual reality version of Resident Evil 7, which um, is a fantastic game, William, because it's very much in line with the Alien and Resident Evil 3 theme of having a pursuing nemesis in, in Resident Evil 3 and, of course, Alien in the films you're associated with. And in Resident Evil 7, they go back to that theme with the character Jack Baker who's pursuing you. And I, I, I played that in virtual reality and I lasted about 30 seconds and got motion sickness, horrendous motion yeah. sickness. And yeah. just had to take the set off and I w was completely white. The look of horror on the guy's face that, that was doing the booth. It's like, here, you, you know, you need to sit down for a while. Gave me some water and it's an incredible experience. Yeah, an incredible experience. It's weird. I was doing Last Frontier. It was for the War of the Planet of the Apes. Andy Circus's company, Imaginarium, yeah. and they were doing the movie and we were doing the video game. And we were in a break and they said, oh, come and look at the virtual reality stuff we're doing. We went into a broom cupboard. I mean, some pails and some stacks of toilet paper. And they said, oh, here, put this on your head. And I went into a mountain range. I was 2000 feet up the side of a mountain. Yeah. Looking down into canyons with birds swooping at me and apes crawling towards me. It was just, I, it wasn't the images, the, the graphics weren't by any means perfect, 
But the perceptual, just as you're saying, Paul, the perceptual rearrangement that was happening yep. was significant. And I, I, I did it maybe 10 minutes, then I took it off. And it took me a good 10 minutes, 15 to come out of it. Yeah. You know, oh, oh, wow. oh my God. It was so interesting that you start to look at your actual experience in a totally different way. It's very cool. Aaron? I'm here. I oh, had hi. to go outside hey, and chase uh, the chickens away from the window because they sounded like a freaking car alarm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just looking at them like, what? what are you carrying on for? There's nothing there. <laughs> it's Atmos. It's great. I love it. <laughs> Keep them coming. Why not? <laughs> oh, my God. Alrighty. You ready for the next question? You reprised your role of Scott Gorman in the 2017 audio drama version of Alien, River of Pain, a novel chronicling the events leading up to the film Aliens in the fall of Hadley's Hope. This role and other installments in the series and its extended universe have stayed close to you over the years. Are you a fan of survival horror? A psychological horror? Or are you normally hiding behind a couch when Doctor Who comes on? (laughs) I just like, I like good movies. I like stuff that grabs me. I want to care about the people I'm watching somehow. You know? Mm -hmm. You guys seen Succession? Uh, It's the story of Rupert Murdoch's family, apparently, but whatever. uh, So all the characters are evil bastards. (laughs) There is not one redeeming person. There might be one, but you're looking at all these really awful people. But I still, you get to care for these people. I want to care about who I'm following, and I want to watch them solve the problems to get to where they need to go, and I want to see them learn about themselves and their world. So, if a horror movie's going to do that, bring it on. I love it. I don't particularly get a lot of fun about watching people creating state-of-the-art gore and shock effects i don't want to see it coming how often you've been sitting in a in, in a movie and you know 15 minutes in you think i can already write act two i want to be surprised i don't want to know what's coming next terrify the life out of me go for it but it better be something interesting yeah. Or have a, a context for the character's life that I'm investing in. If the people, if I'm looking at them and they're two-dimensional and I could just watch the special effects guys having a field day, I just think, nah, switch yes. off. I just wander around and find the stuff I like to see. I've started to look at RE3 and I thought, it is amazing, the stuff that goes on. The production levels are just incredible. Yeah. What kept an audience staying with Resident Evil over all these years is the characterization. They had very little screen time to build characters that we really care for, as we do for the teams we lose in the first two Alien films. And again, with Resident Evil, you have the stars, Alpha and Bravo teams, and each of the individual characters in those teams, again, with very little screen time. We get so much biography and so much backstory with these characters. And that's one thing that Capcom have done so well, is given up that information, that biography. And, you know, each, each one of us, you were asking before about the different names, whether our names are related to, you know, Resident Evil games. And all of us have our, you know, our favorite stars members, all imbued with such fantastic characters. And that's why we care about them so much. And again, with the UB, CS with Mikhail Victor, there's so much that we, we could we could tell you about in, in the further reading, in, in the guides, in the game guides, in various things that come out of Japan. There's there's so much information that we get on, on these characters. 
So you build up the world that these people live in, in more than just, it's not just while you're playing the game, you build the world in other ways as well. Whereas in movies or a TV series, you got to build the world in the scene with the picture. But games are very different. They've got so many levels to them now. The games are so sophisticated. It's amazing. Staying on that topic with the characters, your character in Aliens, Scott Gorman, shares similar flaws and a similar character arc of redemption with Resident Evil 3's uh, Brad Vickers. That was uh, Darren O'Hare's character. I'm not sure if you met him. Yeah, okay. yeah, we were out there for one session. Yeah, we had a lot of fun together. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great, great. Because I know that he shared us. He didn't share a scene with you per se, but he, sh he shared scenes with Jill and with their UBCS comrades. Yeah, I remember <laughs> the scenes. I remember them shooting it. Yeah. Well, the character Brad Vickers, like uh, Scott Corman, they both self-sacrifice after supposed acts of cowardice that put their teammates in mortal danger. We won't question you on Brad's motives, but do you think when Gorman orders his teammates to escape to safety while he goes back towards the danger to retrieve his wounded comrade, do you think he's redeeming himself out of pure guilt that his past inaction led to his teammates' deaths? Or would you say it's from an inherent bravery he always possessed? Uh, you got to make a distinction. It's the actor speaking now. There is fiction and then there is real life. And there's always a balance to be struck because sometimes characters behave in ways that are fictitious. They're written that way because it's fun and it's entertaining. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then there are scripts that are written because they're truthful and you follow these people because that's what human beings do. And they're quite different situations. One is to do with make-believe and imagination. The other is to do, if this person was real, what would happen here? So from Gorman's point of view, I have done a fair amount of military plays, you know, veteran stuff through the years and done a lot of research and also have buddies who are veterans. You may know this already, but when you're in the zone, when you're in a firefight, or you're at war, you don't fight for your country. You don't fight for the flag. You don't fight for political beliefs. You fight for your comrades, your fellow soldiers you're with. Yeah. You watch each other's back. That is what you're engaged with. So you're in fight or flight. The shit mm -hmm. goes off and you get the injections of adrenaline and fear and anxiety that shoot through your system, depending on how often you've been in that kind of a situation, will determine how you react. And I have to say, this is an amazing story, one of the most moving. When I go to Comic-Cons, Comic-Cons are amazing. It's a privilege to do my job because audiences and people who love what we do, we do our job and then people see it and love it. So the story I'm going to say is that I have had a couple of times, members of the armed forces, the Marines, and one particular guy I was thinking of, he's probably almost 40. He was in full uniform. He came up to me and he said, sir, I have to thank you for your contribution. I've been in Afghanistan. I've been in uh, Desert Storm. And I have to say, we would watch Aliens and other movies on a regular basis, and it helped us get through it. But I have to congratulate you on the truthfulness of your portrayal of an LT for his first time in action. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I was about to say oh that. My God. And this guy in full uniform was congratulating me on the accuracy with which I performed. And you just go, wow. holy smokes, man. Wow. Art imitates life, and life imitates art. That's amazing. Wow, yeah. brilliant. <laughs> as an actor that is just the highest accolade you can possibly get above the awards and critics reviews and anything else well it's it's the power of art it's the, yeah. the art of film you're a mirror to life or life's a mirror to what you're doing 
I was so astonished that what I had done was a complete correlation with his actual experience. He was verifying that what happened to Gorman in that scene written by Cameron was actually his experience, which is to say, in your first time you're uh, subjected to that environment, you freak the fuck out. Sure. Who's firing? God damn it! Yeah. I ordered a whole fire. Coming out of the wall. Coming out of the goddamn wall. Look. Hey, Paul. I want you to lay down a suppressing fire with the. That's it. Straight. Hold your fire. God damn it. Hey, Paul. Are you copying? Incinerators and fall back by squads. Say again, all after incinerator. I said I want you to lay down a suppressing fire with the incinerators and fall back by squads. Talk to me. Paul, talk to me. Get them out of there. Do it now. Shut up. Whoever's left, get the Just hell shut out of up! Here. God damn it! Where's the bone? Where's the bone? Sergeant Scott! Get the fuck out of here! Let's go, Marine! Hudson? Vasquez? Hudson, look out! Hudson, look out! Then, when you get your shit together and you think, okay, you're this is it, man, you've been trained, dig in, it isn't a question of, oh gosh, gee, I really feel guilty about you're escaping and your body and your instinct do what has to be done. And it's the truth of what, you know, this seems so well written. We're squatting our way out through the aircon units trying to get the fuck out of charge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, you got a split second the way it's written so michael and i are squatting and we're going forward back forward back oh no go he found his soldier he found his marine wow and it he just woke up to his training he woke up to he was there to protect his buddies Vasquez, move! I have to give credit to my son who pointed this out that that fantastic death scene that you have with Vasquez both your characters Mikel in Resident Evil 3 and of course Gorman go out in similar ways of self-sacrifice Yeah, and you could also say there are some people who say there are only seven stories ever written yeah. in the history of mankind. So, yeah. okay, the person who goes out in an explosion of fire or a blaze of glory is so archetypal, it's bound to turn up. 
And why do I keep getting these characters? Did you ever see Sherlock Holmes? Man, I blaze out that window. And people are both friends of mine going, what are you doing? They're killing you off again. Can't you get some character that lasts longer? And I, what the fuck? I don't know. <laughs> I walk in the room and people go, yeah, he'd be great to kill off about 30 He's done it. He's I done it so brilliantly before. <laughs> Is this fucker not dead yet? They're gone. Come, he's sweating. Get off my train, shit bird! I could talk about Aliens all day, but we better quickly get on to Resident Evil 3 and your wonderful performance in that game. Not many video game series capture the same survival horror atmosphere of the first two Alien films, but many Resident Evil games do just that, and none more so than the first three instalments, and then again to perfection with Capcom's remake, the remake of the original Resident Evil in which Joe here stars as Chris Redfield. When you discovered you were to portray Resident Evil 3's Mikhailovic Victor, were you already aware of the iconic status these games and that character commanded? Well, I, I knew Resident Evil was like one of the major video game brands. And they said, Shh, you can't say Resident Evil. You have to say you know, <laughs> blah, blah, because right. it's all under wraps. But I had no background on the characters. I had no background on the narratives. And I just knew Russian mercenary. I can work with Steve Knievely, the director. We had a great uh, working relationship and everybody gets on and you do what has to be done right then. If you can yeah. tell me, okay, he has to do this and this and this, right, it's done. So I don't need to know a three-act history or a background as to who this sure. guy, what he's doing. Maybe 30, 40 years ago, yeah, I would have to know that. But I can deliver the truth of a Russian mercenary who's getting out of Dodge and uh, is trying to enlist this main character into his, his yeah. force, into his platoon, his team. Yeah. yeah. Carlos, you didn't even think to ask fine young lady her name? She is an elite operative of RPD, Special Tactics and Rescue Service. Her name is something Valentine. It's Jill. Nice to meet you, Jill. I am UBCS, platoon leader Mikhail Victor. My team was sent here to rescue civilians. Right. How's that going for you? The city is completely cut off, isolated. Most of the hundred thousand civilians will wind up dead. Uh, correction, undead. My platoon has suffered serious losses. Just keeping them alive is more than I can manage. Well, you can thank your corporate overlords for that. Yes. Well, we are doing all we can. If we can get this subway train moving, we can evacuate some survivors. But we need help. My men cannot do this alone. I would like to uh, nerd out on you for one moment, William, if I could, <laughs> and just say 
that you were in one of my favorite movies ever as a hazmat suit worker, quotes, uncredited in the 1981 yeah. masterpiece, Scanners. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. I'm so glad that was uh, very distant history. Wow. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you for your eloquent nerdiness. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. I really do. Still makes my head explode every time I watch it. David Cronenberg. <laughs> Okay, we are introduced, William, to your portrayal of Mikhail in a wonderful cutscene early on in the game, much earlier than in the narrative of the original, and with the UBCS mercenary in slightly better shape, which is a blessing, as it gives your script more nuanced dialogue with Jill Valentine. What was this first scene with Nicole Tompkins and Jeff Shine like to perform, and what direction were you given by the voice director? Well, it's kind of like we've got to know each other a bit. We've been there a couple of days. I think this is the kind of, for actors who are trained and experienced, your job is to turn up and deliver. Yeah. I'd learned the lines, and so I knew the structure of the scene. And we had a lot of fun. We had great, you know, Neil Newbond. We had a fantastic time. All of us, and Nicole and Jeff and Darren, we were so amazingly hyped to be in Tokyo. So we had great chemistry going on and the team. So yeah. you got your lines learned and they say, OK, we're going to do this now. You rehearse and you do your job. And uh, with all complete respect to the RE universe, it ain't Tolstoy. It's not <laughs> Chekhov. Right. It's a well-crafted action narrative. So it doesn't require you to do anything other than be truthful. You let the story tell itself. So you got to be you got to be believable and then be truthful. And that's yeah. what we did. And we just had a gas. It was fun. And it was arguably, from my perspective, my opinion, probably the strongest character performances I've seen in the entire series. You know, oh, that's amazing. Ha hats, off, hats off to you guys. Yeah, that's definitely. great. That's amazing. Maybe that might be partly to do with the fact that they're giving more character scene time. I don't know the rest of the series, but who knows? Well, that's great. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Aaron, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, the Thomas Tank Engine. <laughs> Another day. You grew up with Thomas the Tank Engine, no? Did you? Yeah, and I all and I watched all the CGI ones too, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm gonna look this up real quick. Da -da 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 -da. You voice these characters? Yeah, I do quite a lot <laughs> you, of them. Yeah, yeah. You voice 23 different characters. Yeah. That's incredible. That's wow. amazing. And just yeah. listening to you talk, I can really hear Toby out of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so, so glad you enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun. When you get great writing, it's just a pleasure. And when you're allowed to be childlike, it's so much fun. It's such high energy, and you're just free. You can say and do whatever you want. You don't really think Vince will push you like Barton is still alive, do you? I haven't done good authority. Why? Are you worried about teammates? Or something else? Funny how brainless zombies can ambush a platoon like that. Funny the gate was locked. Don't you think? <laughs> wonderful conversation it's been i'm gonna have to go 
Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. It really has been a joy for me since I started this podcast, been very aware and passionate about the links between Resident Evil and the Alien franchise. And so just to have someone on who has so wonderfully performed in both of those series, so very much ingrained in such an iconic film, it, it's been an absolute privilege and, and an honour to have you on. And thank you for spending so much time with us answering our questions. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. On behalf of the Crimson Head Elder podcast, we all would like to thank you for your time and your generosity and your brilliance and your comedy. And uh, this has been a really special time. So thank you again. Joe, yes. thank you. Aaron, thank you, guys. Sonny, George, Oracle Dragon, Chris, <laughs> everybody. I'm so confused. Just <laughs> you got it. But uh, thank you all, guys. It's uh, really been fun. Very good luck, and who knows? We'll come back for RE4. You never know. Oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> Little tease there. And then, thank you so, thank you so much, William, for making this uh, also a, a relaxing experience. It, it felt like we were just, you know, hanging out and just talking. Great, thank man. you. you put us at ease. Be safe. Take care of each other. I think we're in the middle of a revolution, so who knows how things right. are going to develop? But it's a very interesting time. Okay, take care, guys. Bye take for care. Now. You too. Ciao. That was a good one. Wow. I was imagining us all sitting around a, a patio fire uh, <laughs> having a nice evening chat. I hope we could get him back. It was fun listening to what he has to talk about and stuff. I still have a, a few Sorry. alien questions I wanted to ask him. We recorded for an hour before we got to question two. Yeah, he was giving so much useful information. It's like, whoa. Yeah, that was pretty fun. He's cool. He's very cool. And I've got to say, Joe, it really was quite something special to listen to you both your time as a 3D modeler and just listening to you both talking about CGI and film, being part of it and was just kind of listening to it as a fan. <laughs> that was great. Uh, it's entirely my pleasure. By the way, team, really quick, we're streaming in an hour. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. And <laughs> this seems like this would be the perfect one for me to drop in on just to help go through the end of my game. I mean, that would be brilliant. Let me just ask you guys one question. Do you think that people are going to be interested in seeing my pasty, flabby, 59-year-old self playing the game? <laughs> yes, if, yeah, if you want to put on cosplay. I was thinking on the costume, right? <laughs> do you it, know man. what we should do is get a hold of the uh, modding community and get your uh, portrait modded into the game. <laughs> <laughs> and you should play it. You should play as uh, old Redfield. <laughs> oh. Oh, that would be that would be that would be so hilarious. Though, Hello, it? everyone. Joe? This is Joe White, Chris Redfield, playing as myself. I will as Chris Redfield. Paul's over, <laughs> over here, like embarrassed, and Joe's like, "I'm loving it. I'm just, yeah, I'm gonna go all in on this." <laughs> oh, let's do that. Let's do it. Let's make that happen. You could you, you could use your stomach to crush those boulders. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> oh, you went there. <laughs> And now we welcome our next special guest, Jolene Anderson, lead role in Alien Specimen. The film short chosen to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Alien. Jolene was extremely kind to revisit the Crimson Head Mansion to give us her actor's commentary as we live watch together the survival horror film short she starred in, Alien Specimen. 
Welcome to the Crimson Head Elder podcast for our Alien vs Resident Evil special. We are again privileged to host an actor that has now become synonymous with the enigmatic Resident Evil spy Ada Wong, having superbly portrayed her in both Resident Evil Damnation and the spectacular remake of Resident Evil 2. But for tonight's survival horror experience, we will be enjoying her actor's commentary on Alien Specimen, in which she stars as main lead. Jolene Anderson, thank you so much for joining us again, and welcome to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. Hi, gosh, thanks for that introduction. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> hey, everybody. Joining myself, George Trevor, as always, we have the Oracle Dragon. Hi there, how are you today? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Hanging in there like usual. You're in Pennsylvania? East Coast, Pennsylvania. How's the weather? Hot. <laughs> you didn't sound enthusiastic about that. I'm like, ooh, hot. You're like, hot. <laughs> yeah, it's miserable because it rained yesterday, and so everything's so muggy. And since I can't run fans while we're doing recordings, it's very <gasps> hot in here. Making his debut on our podcast, listeners will be very familiar with this chap who's been a huge supporter of our website since the very early days. We have with us Bloody Eye. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> we have Sonny Bauer. Hey, how's it going? How are we doing? Hi, what's up? Hey, Jolene, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you doing in this uh, turbulent times that we're going through? You guys, look, I'm sorry to say it, but I'm thriving. This shit's built for me. <laughs> there you go. I nice almost to... feel like I have to apologize for saying that because, you know, with the caveat that, of course, like it's horrific what's happening. But I myself am, am doing just great. I'm rolling with the punches. So it's all good. No, that's good. That's you guys good. okay? Everybody healthy and happy in your families? Yeah, doing well so far. Just trying to stay safe. You know, got to go out for the occasional grocery run every now and then. But besides that... I try to stay outdoors as much as possible, but um, I like to hang out in the woods and like at the pool and the beach and stuff. So it works out really well. I have a lot of that's friends true. that are like hanging out in bars and going and do all this stuff. And I'm like... Well, yeah. Oh my God. See, this is the thing. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, no. I was like, have a six pack by the pool, guys. We're good. The day that the pub shot a few weeks ago, it was like the entire population of England just found the outdoors. Well, well no, I love a pub too, but, um, you know, I noticed too, even in California where people are a bit pretty outdoorsy, as soon as, yeah, lockdown happened, like everyone discovered exercise and being outside. And I was like, God, I hope this stays like this, except I really want them to get off my trail. There used <laughs> to be like five of us, and now there's like 200. I wish you. And it's just you. not the same. It was like a whole new world to people. It's one of the silver linings, I think. Um, Hey, you guys, I was talking to Nick Apostolides last night, and he wanted me to say hi. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> it was so great. I was just like, oh, because we were going to have a coffee date this morning, and I was like, oh, I'm hanging out with these guys. And he's like, they're so cool. I love those guys. Oh, Make sure God. you say hi. It's so uh, flattering. <laughs> that's nice of Nick. Nick's so cool. The Oreo that's man. Cute. The Oreo <laughs> man, yeah. Thank you, Jolene. I Listening to you talk about the scene with you and Nick and when Ada's wounded and just the dynamic that you guys as actors felt, it, yeah, how incredible it would be if any future projects come up where you and Nick are both acting together in, that, that would be incredible. So fingers crossed, fingers crossed with that. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, as an actor, I would love to do the next installment, right, of the Resident Evil. Nick is like, his life depends on it. <laughs> yes. But um, like, it would be really great. I'm used yeah. to a lot of rejection, so yeah. if I don't get it, that's the thing. But um, it makes me wonder, because I know they're moving forward with it, and I'm always like, well, are they going to hire the same actors? Like, why wouldn't they? I would be quite stunned if they went with different actors, particularly the way that the fans have engaged with that cast from right. Resident Evil 2. Yeah. Um, and I like the fans have told me that um, Leon and Ada's relationship in the next, because the relationship is a lot more complicated and it goes a lot deeper. And I was like, oh, that would be so fun. Yes. <laughs> that no, that's be so because, fun. Yeah, I don't want to get into too much trouble. That's exactly what I wanted to say. 
Jolene, thank you. As you know, you're, you're here to give us a very special and privileged insight into Alien Specimen. This was a short that was released to celebrate the franchise's 40th anniversary, directed by Kelsey Taylor in 2019 mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. written by Federico Francia and, of course, based on the characters by Dan O'Bannon. Starring Jolene as main lead. Yes, Alien Specimen was a film short released to celebrate last year's 40th anniversary of the truly iconic survival horror classic. We've all got the live watch lined up ready to press play. So listeners, if you want to get it up, there'll be a link to the film in the podcast description. But to give you a countdown before we start this uh, very special actor's commentary. In three, two, one, play. That was great. That felt like it was introducing the dog that stars in this film with me. That How was great. perfect was that? Perfect timing. timing. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, yeah. just it's so gorgeous. Oh, there's Goose. Oh, Goose is the, the, dog oh, the, the, the dog's yes. name. Yes. Deals the show. Yeah, amazing, amazing performance. Well, this is the thing. You know, we can deal with, with men, women, and children being turned into zombies in Resident Evil, but as soon as we see a, a, a dog, it's, it's, it's just really pulls on the heartstrings. No. I think Goose, when he saw he was working with Jolene, probably thinking, oh, no, I know what happened to the last... Uh, the last set of dogs that worked with Jolene on on RE2 yeah there you go because he's a Doberman and don't want to get too nerdy but I think that the dogs in RE2 are Dobermans as well you know what's interesting is uh, she was written as a not a husky but what are the other ones Um, a uh, police dogs um, German Shepherds yeah he was written as a German Shepherd and they kind of couldn't get one this is the movie magic that happens and they ended up with this Doberman which I have to say it couldn't have been more perfect you know yeah excellent performance isn't she way more beautiful than oh Just the cinematography is gorgeous. That was Kelsey's boyfriend. They work together a lot. He's an amazing DP. Yeah, I, I really like the cinematography in this. What I thought it was interesting, I, I don't know if you agree, team, is that I think in order to get to a point of kind of like intense, to a point of intensity, you have to have this kind of prior jovial, this is your character going about her day to day, you know, with the music and, you know, it's all very mm-hmm. upbeat. I think it's good to have that context to then descend into that very, very intense situation. Yeah. The sound design's great. It is. And that location is fantastic. It looks a lot like that. I mean, they brought in all the plants and stuff, but it's basically like a water... It's like a weird sewage plant, like water. It's bizarre, and it was really gross and dusty, and it smelled like sewage, and it was perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally perfect for an alien uh, an alien situation. Uh, I was yes, about to perfect. ask what the set was like. <laughs> uh, gross and weird and dark, Um Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Yeah, I love the way that they set the mood with the lighting, too. Mm. It's, it's very well done. 
This must be the challenge for the director and the writer and, and you, the actor, that in a very short space of time, you, you're, you're having to go from that place of tranquility and, and comfortableness, in, like I say, with the jovial music and, and your day-to-day life, to then suddenly, we're now familiar with, with the Alien franchise, this setting. Yeah, and I think they did. A, uh, she did a great job of um, kind of building that suspense, too, without giving too much away. It was, you know, in such a short little amount of time, which I thought was really good, really great. Yeah, it's it's a lot through uh through the cinematography and there's not a lot of dialogue to to, to like give exposition. It's it's mm-hmm. all the mood of what's going on with the lighting, the cinematography, your actions, the sounds. Oh, and yeah. so low budget too. So like she really made um, movie magic here with very little. Uh, it was it was pretty awesome to see everybody kind of come together and make this happen. Um, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears as usual. We'll save some of the questions till afterwards because we don't want to talk over your commentary. But I know, Jerry, you made, you've made a couple of points now that I know Jerry speak to a couple of questions that Jerry has in terms of, you know, the, the magic that has been made with this limited budget. And there we go. You, you joined that ah, illustrious club of, of falling into alien slime. You can put that on your CV. Great. <laughs> Every girl's dream. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> Sonny makes that point about the limited dialogue, the expressions on your face. Obviously, as an actor, that, that puts even more bearing on, on how you can, in terms of how you can put the emotions forward without the dialogue. I imagine that must have come up in terms of how you're telling the story of what you're feeling, just literally just with your expression, as opposed to what you may be more used to, you know, with the Resident Evil franchise, you know, with your voice. Um, You know, it's interesting. It's like a lot of questions. Um, Oh, I love this. It's so groovy. Um, I don't see the difference. Like, that never occurred to me because you're always, as an actor using your face, your voice, your butt, all the, every, all the elements all come together. So um, it's interesting that you as an audience member would notice something like that. But um, as an actor, I don't, I don't think about that at all, you know, it's because it's all part and parcel. Like it all comes, it's all the same. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like people say like, if you're a voice actor and um, is that different from whatever? I'm like, no, of course you're just using your voice like you would anything else. It's all a part of the, you know, it's all part of the whole package. Of yeah. Yeah. The whole package of the performance. Yeah. Yeah. This is great when it goes dark. Yeah, a lot of storytelling being told, like just just through the cinematography, the lighting, mm-hmm. sound. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. It's you know the, the, writing, the less the is sense. more. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's always been the case, hasn't it? Particularly with the first couple of Alien films, is that the less is more. Ridley Scott talks about the first film and how he really didn't want many shots of that alien. It's not towards the very end that you actually get almost like a full body shot of the alien. You know, it almost just kind of glimpses here and there. Yeah. This is what I love, just that darkness and torchlight and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I love all the steam. (laughs) 
Kelsey's amazing. She's such a great director. I hope we get to work together again. Um, I've actually, interesting, I've worked with on other projects where she's been like an AD and her and her boyfriend. I've seen them on set at other times, which is really awesome. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, cause we, luckily we didn't have to worry about interference with the outside world, but it was very difficult to sort of, um, get the lights and the mood and everything right. Um, and a lot of like running around and you have to, um, consider the special effects, right? Yes. Because that yes. little hugger wasn't really there. We sort of had a mock-up toy that we had okay. to play with. Um, so that's a lot when you have a lot of special effects, it's just working around our parameters cause you know, it's going to be added later. Um, so there's a lot of things you don't think about that um, you have to take into account when you're just sort of, you know, you're trying to get a shot like this, but it's not as simple as it seems. Yeah, yeah. You've got a camera crew running around in the dark. You've got 10 people running backwards <laughs> and you're not actually going that fast. And then, it, you know, all these funny little technical things that I think people don't think about when you because it looks fairly simple, but um, it never is. And testament to your performance, that that doesn't take you out the, particularly with these expressions that we're, that we're watching on your face, really telling the story of fear, that that doesn't detract from, from your performance. No, again, that's how things are made. It's never all real and like this. You know, there was not a thing on the ground for me to look at, you know. Oh, Ugh. Ugh, I love that. That's almost <laughs> just like a look of disgust and disdain. Yeah. Well, and that's um, Kelsey, you know, like people forget the genius of the directors because they're, yeah. you know, um, I might have had a few takes of my own and then, you know, she'd be like, I want it to just be disgusting. Like you're sick of this <laughs> thing. And I'm like, okay. Oh, and I love this emotional ending. I I was really sad. This is, and then this dude like, Billy didn't, Mays. Be, didn't believe me. My boss, <laughs> shit. And here he is. He's like, what happened here? Oh, an alien yeah. attacked me, huh? Interesting. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, Thanks I'm gonna leave up. now. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, she oh, did her job. Oh, goose. Oh, put the dog out of misery. Robo goose. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Robo goose. Wow, that's fantastic. Ah! Yeah, there oh, it is. Damn it. <laughs> That puts you up there with, you know, with Ripley, the way that you dispatched that face hugger. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I love this project. This is really, really fun. And anytime I'm starring in a movie that starts with do 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 20th Century Fox, I'm pretty excited. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was great. Yeah, I'm really proud of Kelsey. I thought that was so cool. I saw some of the questions that you would you were curious about. And, you know, this is – and people always say, like, how did you get involved with this project? Like, how did this happen? And it's such a surprise because I just saw a breakdown for a short film. And I read sort of uh, the description of the character. And you're like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. I think I could do that. And then submit yourself and you pitch yourself a little bit. And then uh, they send you the breakdown for the audition, which was just sort of like a home audition. It was like a self-tape. And then when I read just even the sides for the audition, I was like, oh, cool. I like Because the sides were that first conversation that she had with her boss over the intercom um, when she's talking to the dog. And I just kind of liked, um, I liked her sassiness. I liked, I know I just kind of liked the vibe of the thing. And, and I just taped it on my computer at like my kitchen bar without another reader, which is sort of how I do a lot of things. 
And then they booked me like that. I got the job. And then they send you the script and they're like, it's so cool and it's great. And then once you're already on the project, then they're like, oh, we're doing this alien anthology. Like you learn more and more about it as you end up on the project. It's really interesting. And it's funny because I always tell people, actors and people like that, I was just like, just put yourself out there. Just find projects that you want to work on and you never know what they're going to be, where they go, what the full story is, what you're actually becoming a part of. And it's one of the really exciting things about kind of creating opportunities for yourself or kind of like putting yourself out there and finding things on your own without like your agency or or anything like that. Because then I ended up in this amazing project just by accident, just looking for work. And now I was able to work with this amazing director. And again, I hope we all work together again. And Adam too, the DP, the whole gift, just like the Resident Evil. Like I didn't know what I was auditioning for. I just liked the sound of it. Were you a fan of the Alien series prior to being cast as a main lead in Alien Specimen? And did the casting process come from Tongle, 20th Century Fox, or were you contacted by Kelsey Taylor directly for this role? I love the Alien movies. I don't want to say I'm not a fan, but now that I've entered this world of fandom, I realize there's a difference between (laughs) loving the movies and being like a diehard fan. So I love the Alien movies. I loved Sigourney Weaver in that, like her role. Of course, it's always nice to see a a woman in a lead role like that. You know, I'm a fan because the movies are awesome and I'm a fan of the way that they were made. I was just cruising the breakdowns. You know, nobody contacted me. I just saw a casting notice and a breakdown for the role and for the project. And I pitched myself and then auditioned and they gave me the role, which was super cool. They put out a thing looking for their people. And luckily they picked me. Right on. Yeah. So what you're saying, yeah, you're a big fan of the films, but didn't sacrifice half your social life to set up a podcast dedicated to the franchise. <laughs> like, and, and then start stalking actors around the world. Will you come on our podcast? Exactly. That doesn't sound like somebody I know. (laughs) I'm grateful for you guys to keep it all together. We're grateful for you coming on. Oh, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. Jolene, were you aware of the rules for these film shorts that they had to include a strong female lead, a slow, suspenseful, Hitchcockian build-up, and grounded, everyday working-class characters? Absolutely not. I knew none of those things. I think that was really amazing. In fact, I didn't know that they had to have strong female leads either, which is really cool. Because I remember talking to one of the guys at Tongle when we were on set, and he was really championing Kelsey because he was like, I really want to champion really strong, talented female directors. And he just was just so impressed with her and thought she was so amazing. And I was really excited about that. But I hadn't known that that was sort of like a theme throughout this whole contest or whatever. So um, that's great. That's really great. It's always nice when you have men in positions of power that are reaching out like that because um, look at this great piece of art that she made. I mean, I'm so impressed by this film. I work on a lot of projects and they all sound good on paper and you don't really ever know how they're going to turn out. And I'm so proud of her. I just think this is an amazing little film. So good on Tongle and good on everyone for trying to uplift women. All that was a callback to Sigourney and the original Alien you know, her being Ripley and trying to, I guess, influence more roles of the aliens. You have Jeanette Goldstein as Vasquez. Mm-hmm. You know, you go on down the list, the aliens always been known as the series for strong female leads. So it only was natural for them to do that. Yeah, good on them. From 20 years ago, I don't know, maybe it was 30 years ago. <laughs> when, when were the 80s? When Alien called 40 years ago. This was the 40th anniversary. Yeah. So yeah, thank God for them, like paving that road too. I think that's really cool. 
Yeah, this is how, how old I am. I, I, I think I was about two years old. And I have this memory of my parents coming back from the cinema in 79 from watching the Alien film. I woke up as they came through the door and asked my mum about this film. And I remember just saying, it, it's about this monster that turns into various things. And I said, oh, what, what did it turn into at the end? And she said, it turns into a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> I, rem- I remember years later when I became a very sort of grumpy nine or 10 year old saying to her, you know, I really didn't think that that was an accurate review of, of the film, mum, that you gave me. <laughs> You write your you mom a letter. Mom. <laughs> Come on, that was no dinosaur. Wait, you're, wait you're, you were grumpy at nine or ten already? Oh, yeah. I started on the RC. You're like, I need to start a podcast immediately, letting people know that that was not a dinosaur. It was yeah. an alien. And someone needs to set the record straight. Yeah, you don't know how near you are to the truth. At the start of the film, we are introduced to your character's location, planet LV-492. A location which immediately sets the intense and foreboding atmosphere that very, very few franchises can do. What was it like walking onto set for a franchise able to achieve that immediate atmosphere and emotion from its audience? It's amazing. Okay, so as an actor, like I love shooting on location or anytime you show up to set, right? So you've read the script, you've had a little bit of like prep and you've done all these things and there's this imaginative world that you get to be a part of, but it's already in the mind of, you know, Kelsey. To show up on set and go to this water reclamation center, basically, that's like this huge, if you come to LA and you can see off of the coast, there's this huge, looks like a polluting kind of factory force. And I'm driving up there and I was like, this is our set. And then you go into this like deep, dark, creepy basement and literally smells like sewage and it's filthy and disgusting. (laughs) And the deeper and deeper you go, you're like, this is perfect. And it's so wonderful. It's like magical. It's like the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you're like, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. So I I just think that that's part of like the movie magic. And again, it just speaks to the talent of the people who are making the film, the director and the DP and everyone else and the set designers. So it's pretty incredible to be able to walk onto a set like that. And that really brings it all to life. It's really kind of a magical thing. Um, And I feel bad for everyone who's running around with masks on and it's disgusting and they're sweating and they've been working for like 18 hours. But when I walk on the set, I just think it's absolutely incredible. And I felt that. I felt that when I walked on set. What you see when that first shot comes up, that's what it felt like walking onto set every day. It's magical. It's great that you've kind of engaged and connected with that yourself, but it must also, I imagine, feed back into you and help you as an actor to kind of immerse yourself in that world and to step into the shoes of that character when it does all feel so real as opposed to maybe being surrounded by green screen. Oh, yeah. Now, of course, like both are fun, but then one comes with their own challenges, right? But no, I love that. I love it. Once you get like in your wardrobe, even at the fitting, you're talking more and more about like what she would be wearing, what the atmosphere is going to be like. What is this? What's that? What's more comfortable? Who is she? You think about like how you look as everything kind of comes together. Absolutely. It was in you were sort of in this imaginative place. And then you actually walk on set and you're in the wardrobe and they've sprayed you full. It's because it's freezing in there, but I had to look like sweaty and hot. And once you kind of get all those elements together and you're sort of surrounded by all of it yeah it's just you're in it and it's amazing it, it really lends itself to your performance yeah it just all comes together and it's funny you can always look at your director's eyes and they just start twinkling you know they're like <laughs> oh you just see their vision coming to life wow. um, and it happens for us too as an actor you know once you're all suited up and you're in the atmosphere and you're in the in the world it absolutely does it absolutely does take you there and it helps helps performance for sure oh yeah wonderful now and that absolutely comes across on the screen 
It was exactly like that. You know what I mean? When it's dark, like it's dark in there. Turn all the lights <laughs> off in this creepy, smelly, dusty basement. Like it was, I had a lot of weird respiratory issues after that for a while. Oh, um, really? I was like, every time oh, I like- go home from work, I was like, my eyes burn, my nose burns because it was just disgusting and probably not very healthy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you were actually living in there for the time that we were shooting it and it definitely helped. Yeah, alien acid blood will do that. Yeah, and you can kind of hear things dripping all the time, you know? Yeah, it was perfect. That's amazing. Yeah, super cool. Okay, so how much prep time were you afforded for the shoot and for various scenes? You know, once you're on board, right, once they're like, we want you to take this role, then there's just a lot of like chit chat back and forth, right? There's a lot of talking about the wardrobe and coming over and doing those fittings with Kelsey. So she's very hands on. Her and Adam made this hilarious movie in their apartment because she wanted to show me how it was going to go kind of shot by shot because we didn't have a lot of rehearsal time. So her and Adam made this movie where like he was the dog and she (laughs) was me. And then they had this alien. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And they sent it to me to be like, this is how it's going to go. And I was like, I'm dying. I'm dying. Like someday when you guys get married, you have to like show this video. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. So I got a lot of stuff like that. So they put a lot of time into just trying to like carve it out so that we would be as prepared as possible because they only had so much of a budget and you know you have to pay me for rehearsals so there wasn't a lot of time to come and do that kind of stuff so she she prepped it in a very very smart way and they spent a lot of time doing that and making sure that I knew visually how it was going to be and exactly what they wanted kind of out of each scene so by the time we got to set we would kind of walk through it but we were all pretty much on board with how they wanted it to look the storyboard was very well laid out, complemented with private video from their home. Which is <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there was about probably for a couple of weeks, a few weeks, uh, maybe it was like a month for them to like prep it all between casting and then us actually shooting it. So um, we did have a lot of time to kind of hash it out so that once we got to set, we could get it done. What you have to really make time for are the unknowns. So if, if they can make it clear to the actor what's happening the unknowns are like the steam machine isn't working or we can't get this to go or this isn't looking right right so you can make room for all the technical difficulties but when it comes to actually shooting and we're ready to go we were all on the same page yeah it doesn't matter how well the script is unless the writer can get their vision in you know into your mind um Mm. and i imagine that that's a talent in itself so um Yeah. yeah what changed from the initial pitch and first script by kelsey and federico to the shooting script if anything there were probably tweaks because that's a whole different ball game. It stayed pretty close to what I had originally seen and only little things changed here and there. We were talking about prepping. We had a rehearsal in the park one day to kind of just like hash things out. And I remember they had to sort of work out what was going to happen with the dog and how uh, exactly how the ending was going to be. And I can't remember what the difference was, what they started with and how they ended it. And I remember us having a lot of conversations about it. And it turns out they made the right choices. Um, because now that i think about it yeah we sort of had to hash out how the scenes went they tweaked it a little bit to kind of to tighten it up and to kind of fill any loopholes or any questions they thought the audience might have and i remember vaguely them sort of debating how the end was going to look and i just can't remember what that debate was whatever they did it they made the right decision and i remember talking us a lot about what the dog was going to look like And for us, that was very important because it's such an emotional part of the film. I mean, to me, what stuck out the most was this relationship with this dog when I read the script. I was like, it's really beautiful. So it's funny that we talked a lot about that, about casting the right dog. But as far as writing the script, I know that they did a bunch of revisions. And I know that they talked a lot about how it was all going to actually play out once it was on screen. And I think they did tweak it to great avail. 
And it's interesting what you say in terms of the relationship with the dog and there's Ripley with the Jonesy. And I noticed that when very early on in the film, when Dev, your boss, you speak to him on the intercom, I think he says something to you like, don't name them. He kind of almost, you know, scolds yeah. you for the fact that you've given the dog a name. Yeah, that was my favorite part of the whole film. When I first met Kelsey, I was like, I just want you to know that this relationship with this dog <laughs> and this emotional through line really touched my heart. And I know there's all this really other fun alien stuff going on, but I just thought it was genius that with all of that stuff, they were working through this beautiful emotional through line. And yeah, that was actually my favorite part of this entire film. Something to relate to, the human uh, connection to what's around them. You could have all the aliens you want in an alien movie and like, you know, blazing guns and stuff. But if there's no connection with the humans, yeah. you know, where's the substance? Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it's not only that. I love that they throw in the complication of like AI and the future and things like that. Right. It's still keeping you in that world of the human machine relationship. And no, no matter how far in the future we are, I even love that she's still in this greenhouse, right? So she's still in this place that's full of life in a atmosphere and sort of a setting that is completely devoid of life. And then you have this dog that you're emotionally treating as a biological being, but it's not. It's a machine and they're there to protect you from exactly what goes down. And, and that's like what I love. It's what made the Alien franchise so popular is the complexity that they add to these things. It's not just a horror film. And even though there are all these other things going on, these through lines are what touches the audience and what keeps us so engaged. So I love the complexity of all of that. And I felt it when I read the script. I was really excited about it. So kudos to the writer again as well. When that initially came out from the people I showed, family, friends, everybody loved that emotional attachment that you had to the dog. And they themselves had it. That in yeah. that broke so many hearts. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> when I first saw this and he said, don't name them, I thought, why isn't she allowed to name the dog? Is there something yeah. I'm missing okay. here? And then when the ending comes up, it's like, oh, oh. Yeah. Well, that's what's twisted yeah. about it, isn't there? There are actually people out there who probably just consider dogs or animals secondary to humans. They would say something like that, even if they're real dogs, mm. you know, and I, I yeah. think the complexity and the twist of to finding out that it's an android, it's, yeah, like you said, these through lines, it was just, it was a very nice touch. I really and I love that. how they dropped it in the beginning. Mm. Bink. And everyone's like, huh? You get the implication the dog's real because how attached you are to it. And mm. when the ending comes up, it's like, oh, that's why he was saying that. But still, we're attached <laughs> to this dog. Who can't love yeah. it? I think it's important that she did her job. If you had just, say, taken the facehugger out with one spade splat, it almost would have been like neutering the facehuggers from how powerful and fearful we were of them in the films. But I think the fact that you were able to do that because Maggie had clearly injured the facehugger mm -hmm. on two or three occasions where you can hear, you know, that's the awful thing while you're chasing after her, you can hear that Maggie is mm -hmm. fighting and... And then the powerful and the, again, the complexity of then at the very end when she has to like, she has to put Maggie down, you know, I'm just like, oh, oh. this is so good. <laughs> For anybody that's owned animals, that's a very touching scene. Um, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. It's an old yeller moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that beautiful dance between machine and animal and like, and our emotional connections and how real are things and not, you know, I, I love those kind of storylines. I, I, I love that so much. What you just said in terms of where the line is, Westworld spent about two seasons. Seasons trying, <laughs> trying to explain that. Oh my God, you've just said it, and, and that was that scene did it in a few seconds. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's why I was so impressed. I was like, you did not miss a beat. You were able to tell so many stories, and it was so full. It was just a very full film in ten minutes. I took that in as well. Like even when Dev shows up in the flesh for like two seconds, mm -hmm. he acted more like an AI than I felt like you had more of an AI human relationship with him than with Maggie. 
just to show that for like a couple seconds even was, yeah. was so effective, I think. Yeah, plus Maggie had my back more than Dev did. Like yeah. the machine was there for me more than he was. He like left me alone in this place. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love it. I love how complex that is. Really kudos to them. Like you yeah. say, it's, it's amazing. And of course, they had to make the emotionless, uncaring male character English, which I picked up on immediately (laughs) when you were speaking to him on the intercom and we're really getting very little back in terms of concern. Yeah, I loved that relationship. Again, such a short amount of time. And I think that's what I loved about the breakdown, too, or when I was sent the sides for the audition. You just have one page to develop this relationship, which I'm I'm not developing the relationship. The writer developed the relationship. But you as the actor, you are intrigued by that, right? So I loved that. I love that in a very short space of time, you understood the relationship between these two people. Even just that one minute at the top of the film. And it says everything about everyone's position and uh, what's going on. And, and I've just really appreciated that, too, about just something being really, really well written. Yeah, it really set the stage. Definitely no wasted space in that entire 10 minutes. Yeah. Maybe not on your bucket list, the experience of falling into facehugger slime. It does still put you in a very illustrious club of actors. We spoke about this before with your role as Ada Wong. Did you feel the weight of the previous Alien installments taking on this role that you're now being part of the alien phenomenon? We talked about this with Ada too, right? I don't know what it is, but I don't. If someone's giving me the role, and they were very enthusiastic. They're like, we're so excited to have you. And when someone says something like that to you, you already feel like there's a symbiotic kind of relationship happening there. You already feel like I understood it in this way. You wrote it in this way. We feel like we're all on the same page. So I feel like if you've given me this thing and we're all in this together, because I'm not alone. I'm They're there to carry me and help me. We're all in it together. I don't feel that fear. I feel like if you didn't think I was right for it, you would have hired somebody else. There are thousands of people wanted that role. So I feel very confident once someone is confident about hiring me that we are, we're just going to do what we've all set out to do creatively. So no, I, I, and I kind of haven't ever felt that in anything that I've done. And so that's very freeing for me. I don't feel any pressure. Um, My only pressure is to um, make sure that I'm giving the director what she's looking for. You know, I just want to make sure, is that what you wanted? Is that what you need? Let's not move on unless we've created something that was in your dream, you know, so we can't squish over anything. So I always feel very confident that everyone's going to keep me on track and that they appreciate my input on the character. Um, and so I don't, I don't, and it, it, the story's already written, you know, I guess I don't feel a lot of pressure as an actor because the movie's already been made in the script. It's already been made in the mind of the director. And then I'm just there to sort of be directed, you know, I'm just sort of like a vessel of whatever they want to do. So I feel like the pressure is on them. It's not so much on me. I just get to go and play and be this character that they've already created. So I I didn't feel that pressure. I had no doubt that it was going to work. You you use that word confidence. Perhaps it's something that maybe I didn't take on board as much as I should when framing the question myself, because these characters, particularly Ada Wong as well, ooze confidence. Yeah, of course, I'm sure those that are involved with the casting can clearly see that in you, that you have that confidence. And not only that, I mean, I feel confident that they've made the right choice. I trust that they've hired the right person. In the same way that when you don't book a role, you don't take it too seriously because you're like, well, they are going to hire the person that they feel is is right for the role. And if it's not you, it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that maybe you're not a good actor or like blah, 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 blah. You're like, you know, it's like they have something in mind. And I trust them to hire the right person for the job. 
And so that confidence is not that I'm already confident in myself, but I'm also confident that they're doing the right thing. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of trust that has to happen when we all do this because it's, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of people's jobs on the line. Kelsey had to get this right or she'd have missed a massive opportunity, right? I think we all have to trust each other and you have to do that every time you walk into a project. And so I don't typically feel that pressure. I'm sure everyone else does. I'm sure the director does. I'm sure the producer does, but I typically don't. I feel very well supported by the team that has a lot more at stake than I do. That leaves no space for overthinking. That just allows you to come at it with your own uh, portrayal, your own take on uh, what the character does. Yeah. yeah. And no yeah. one has ever made me feel that way. I never, when people started asking me like, oh, were you worried about filling Ada's shoes or whatever? I didn't know what shoes I was supposed to fill. So luckily I had the ignorance behind me of like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it left no uh, room for overthinking. You just can go in and just come to a character, come to a story with your own interpretation, not feel uh, the pressure of being compared or having to compare to something that was uh, portrayed before. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like to work with Kelsey Taylor, a female director in a film series known for its portrayal of strong female characters? It's awesome. Look, I don't want to be all like Nazi feminist or anything, but it gets really tiring when it's just, why is it so odd that a woman would be directing a film and that there would be a female lead? I just can't wait till that's not weird anymore. I can't wait till that's not a big thing. Because why not? If she had said like Steve Smith directed this film, you wouldn't have known the difference. It's great. I, I'm lucky. I get to play a lot of really strong female leads, but I'm the only chick on the SWAT team. I'm the only blah, 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 blah. That even gets tiresome. You know, I was like, can't there be another woman in this movie? Like, I don't understand. So it's great. It's great. And let's just keep doing it. What would be the difference if this part had been a man? Like nothing really. I just want it to be more normal. You know what I found most fascinating? And I'm not sure if this is controversial enough. So Kelsey and Adam are our partners and they work together all the time. And Adam does a lot of cinematography and I've seen them put on different hats and be ADs and all this other stuff. And you know what I love about their relationship? So she's been given this opportunity to make this film and it's all about her, this film being made for her and her vision. And then she's got this male partner who's sort of taking a, not a backseat because he's the DP, but she's the one sort of being elevated. Right. Mm. And there is no weird power play. There's no weird tension. There's no weird anything. It's perfectly natural and normal for Adam to completely be supporting Kelsey in this capacity. And I loved that aspect of working on this project to see a relationship with a man and a woman and her being elevated to this level without him feeling emasculated or pushed to the side. Them just having a strong and brilliant partnership where they just make amazing art together was probably my favorite part of this film. Not even me being a female lead and her being the female director, but that relationship and that being normal is something that I would just like in my life as well. And I would like this to just be more normal. But we're, we're yeah. moving forward, thank God, you know, so because here we are. I'm looking forward to when it's not a novelty. That's something, though, that the Resident Evil series does well. There are as many, if not more, strong female leads yeah. Uh, within Resident Evil, Jill Valentine's, Claire Redfield's, Ada Wong, Alex Wesker. I wonder if that's why not only has it been such a popular video game for so long, but why these remakes are so popular, because they're already fairly progressive. Like most of the heroes and the ass kicking characters are women. And I think that's very fitting for today. And I think a lot of people can relate to it. And I think it's part of why these newer renditions are still holding on to their fans and building new ones. I hope other people take note of that. 
An interesting tidbit is it's touted a lot as the film that first put a black lead for a horror picture, and that's Night of the Living Dead. But the actual behind-the-scenes story is that they picked Dwayne Jones just because he was the best actor for that part, not because he was black or... Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. They didn't understand it when it came out and everybody was, you know, talking about that, understandably. I mean, Everyone's like, he's black? <laughs> yeah, a black guy, and he's, he's not in a negative what? role. Obviously, they did this on purpose. And they're looking around. They're like, no, it's just that's how we did things. He auditioned yeah. best. So I, I hope things get to be in that realm for, you know, people of color and women that really deserve. You know, it is. It is. Them. The tides are changing. I, I, I really believe that. And I've said this before. You know, I know a lot of people get tired of like Me Too or Oscars So White and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it takes these really extreme movements to just move a few inches, right? So I work in film and TV. And when we started with the whole Oscars So White, immediately there was a 180 degree change on every single set I went to. There were so many black people on set, so many Latina people on set, so many women suddenly in charge, all of these different things. The whole entire world on set changed dramatically almost overnight. So things are changing and the the louder people get, and I know that it's scary, but these movements, they change things. They really do. So um, I expect things to continue to be moving forward and be more aggressive. And I don't think this train's stopping. So I'm very optimistic about it. And that's my two cents. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Did the film's runtime and budget affect filming in any way? And were you aware of any techniques or tricks of the trade employed to overcome these limitations? Huh. Um, of course, those things affect what's happening. They had like a toy face hugger, which is really nice. cute because Goose would play with it and run around. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. Oh, it was the best part oh, of it. No. So no, they had like a plastic kind of doll thing that was about the same size because you still sort of had to use it for stuff. So no. And then they went in and did that, which was pretty awesome because it looked amazing. I was really impressed by the face hugger on screen. But no, we had like a toy face hugger with okay. us all the time. And the dog, too, they would sort of make Goose lay in that disgusting thing of whatever. But no, then they had to go in and CGI the whole animatronic dog laying in pieces and had to just sort of create a rough template that we were all able to kind of like work around. That would have been so cool for any alien fan on set. I'm sure someone may have pinched that as a prop and taken it home. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Hopefully they gave it to Goose. I think he deserved it. Yeah. Yeah. That scene where you see Goose attacking the uh, facehugger, they just say, okay, go play with the toy, Maggie. <laughs> yeah, toss it. Go get it, Goose. So <laughs> cute. Reminds me of one of my huskies, the boy who's just obsessed with teddies, and he doesn't destroy them. He just, like, lays there with them. And I don't know if you have them in America. We've got Forbidden Planet over here, a store that just sells manga and anime, Pokemon teddies and all sorts of things like that. And it's my husky's <laughs> favorite shop. He, li- I mean, they welcome him in. He, we literally go into Forbidden Planet for my husky, not for me. <gasps> Um, oh. And we walk around and he's like looking at all these like really expensive Pokemon teddies and stuff that I can't buy. Him. But then we go to the charity shop a few doors down and, and we buy him a little teddy in there. <laughs> um, I, I, I just have to be careful when I walk past parents with, with little kids in their prams with teddies in case he like lunges. Like, Don't worry, he's not lunging for your child. He just wants their teddy. He just wants that teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. And scary. So at the same time. Yeah, and very scary for the parents. No matter how much money you have, you always run out of time and money. Always. It's it's always like a thing. <laughs> it's funny. The things you have to jump over and all the things you have to... It's just a constant problem-solving situation when you're on set, right? Mm-hmm. So I know that we had to kind of keep the days within a certain amount of time, you know, and they had so many art direction sort of situations and technically things would always go wrong. But Kelsey is steel under pressure. Nobody lost their cool. 
It's so important to work with people that can stay calm under immense amounts of pressure. And this team, led by Kelsey, did exactly that, which was incredible. So I would watch them sweat, and uh, I'm sure they didn't sleep for a month. Yeah, we had a lot of technical difficulties sometimes with, like, the steam, and things would break, and things would whatever. We wouldn't have electricity, or we wouldn't have this and that. And they just made it work. And, you know, you end up getting what you can get because you've only got that location for the five days, and you've only got your talent and all of your crew that you're paying and you don't have any more money to do anything else. And somehow they have to take everything that they've shot and make a film out of it. So they rose to the occasion and um, the task at hand wasn't easy, but they, they certainly made it work. So, you know, it's just about building a good team and being able to jump over any hurdle that comes your way. And, you know, they did that. They did all of that. And um, everything is a hurdle. Everything goes wrong. Everything. And they were able to get around all of it. And it's usually technical. It's always technical. Everyone on their crew was just a, a team player and they all kind of shared the vision. And I think what they get for doing that is this amazing film that they can all be really proud of. You know, you have to be able to adapt to the situation. And um, I think that's the most important thing. And, and they certainly did that. Sometimes happy accidents can happen with uh, technical uh, limitations, too. This is probably the most obvious uh, example to always go back to, but like the shark never working in Jaws, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> resulting in, in Steven Spielberg having to basically not use it except for like, what, two, three scenes, maybe fully. And yeah. all that suspense and all that, you know, yeah. tension building up to those moments and then effectively done. Yeah. And so, like I said, even yeah. the casting of the dog, right, of Little Goose. Now I can't see any other dog in that role. How was this dog not originally written into this script? I know that's a casting thing, but sometimes those are happy accidents too. Like you couldn't have ended up with a better dog for that. I think the original one that's written into it wouldn't have been nearly as amazing. And then even when you're doing all like the slime and the effects and all that kind of stuff, like we're doing it on the day. So sometimes you're over time, it's taking two hours to get that done instead of the 20 minutes or 30 minutes that we had allotted in the script. It's not working. It's not looking right. It's not doing the thing it's supposed to do. The mechanical thing isn't doing the thing it's supposed to do. And then, yeah, you end up with these beautiful, happy accidents that you're like, actually, that looks better. So um, I'm a big fan of the happy accidents. And I think really good directors and, and ADs and crew members know that everything running perfectly is not ever the case coming from an optimist. I just wanted to say real quick that I did get contacted by our new host, Joe White. Not sure if you know, Jolene, uh, Joe White was the voice actor for the first Resident Evil remake for Chris Redfield in oh, that game. Yeah, cool. and and he has recently joined the Crimson Head team, and he is the new host of the podcast, but he could not make oh, it nice. today, unfortunately. Oh, he, uh, he, well, tell him I said hello. I look forward to meeting him at some point. Absolutely, yeah. He, he said that he wanted uh, us to say hi, and that he was he's sorry that he missed the chance to meet you, and that he oh. loves Ada. He loves Ada. Hey, who does <laughs> <Nothing>. love Ada? <laughs> We're here for the G-Virus. Huh. That's not gonna happen. I'm warning you, doctor. Oh, yeah? Hey! Stop! Ada! You'll never get the G-Virus! Didn't expect that from a scientist. Uh. Leon. Forget about me. Just go. Stop her before she gets away. Oh. The characters returned. I would love to just see you and, and Nick and Steph, like Nicole yeah. and Jeff Shine. Everybody yeah. just come back. It, it'd yeah. be great. It'd be fun for us, too. We're like a little family, a little RE family. 
Yeah, exactly. So many times throughout this series, an actor has been replaced. You feel like you're losing a piece of that character. Sure, somebody new comes to the role, but it doesn't feel like the same person. And the fact that there is a chance here to get some consistency. I think Capcom's more aware now that the fans really love their voice actors or their like, you know, their favorite characters and who's associated yeah. with them. So like they kind of like put in a new guard just for the last game. I feel like they don't need to replace everyone again. I feel like they just replaced everyone. So let's just keep this going for a little bit. <laughs> Jolene, amazing again. So fantastic. I'm oh. sorry I don't know more about the franchise. <laughs> No, just I mean, sending a just... dossier of like nerd stuff. You're like, do you know about this stuff? I'm like, no. No, it's okay. It was it was about you and your experience. You really do give such fantastic interviews. Aww. It's one of the most popular viewed interviews. Our Resident Evil 2 interview with you, our podcast uploaded to our YouTube channel. I've seen other interviews that you've given because you've been so generous with the fans. Your engagement is bringing us fans together as well. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad because, you know, I love talking to you guys and I love doing this. And it's such like a it makes me feel like when you guys are so grateful, I was like, it's so narcissistic. Like, of course, I want to talk about these projects. I love films. I love my job and I love being a part of this community. I always wonder, like, what does anybody get out of this, out of listening to me just talk about myself? So it makes me feel really good that it's actually affecting other people in a positive way, because I, I love talking to you guys anytime. Thank you. Just be careful, though, saying that, because the last person, Joe White, who said that to us, ended up becoming the host of the podcast. So uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll see you next week for our next episode. Yeah, no, right. Thanks. You guys have the ideas. I'll just show up, okay? <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's, it's also down to, like, you and Nick for being so, you know, so generous with your time and just wanting to connect, you know, with with, uh, with yeah. fans like us. You know, yeah, it's, it's it. incredible. It's just great. It's amazing. I'm, just, I'm yeah, so it's... surprised to hear that. I just feel like, what is the point of being an actor if you don't love the world that you live in? I just, I'm surprised by that. I just feel like if you don't want to reach out and talk to fans. I don't know. Like, what's the point of doing all that stuff if we're not having this connection and, and enjoying it? I, don't, I just don't really get that. And thanks for taking an interest in me. It was nice to hear all of you again and meet two new people. We'll do this again. Aaron, I'm, I'm sure. Have you expired? Are you just suffocated? Are you not even with us? Oh, you don't understand. I'm over here fanning myself with a oh. medical paperwork. And I'm like, ah, oh, oh, I'm starting to smell here. Why? Hot. We're done. Well, thanks for sweating it out. I appreciate it. Poor thing. Aaron probably looks like she's been on the Nostromo. Um, <laughs> she's like, oh, trust me, I'll be getting a shower after this. Just came out of the LV 492 basement. <laughs> yeah, I probably smell that bad too. <laughs> All right, Jolene, thank you so much again. Oh. Much love from myself. Oh, you um, too. Yeah, it was, it was very nice speaking to you, so thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Good to speak to you guys. Hi, right, kids. Okay, that's all from us at the Crimson Head Elder podcast. I want to thank our very special guest again, Jolene Anderson, star of Resident Evil 2 and Alien Specimen, two real survival horror classic series. Thank you, Jolene. Oh, thank you, you guys. Talk soon. Good night from the Crimson Head team. Myself, George Trevor, the Oracle Dragon, Joe White, and Sonny Bauer. If you enjoyed this evening's episode, please help us grow the podcast by following at Podbean or Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review. Just search for Resident Evil Survival Horror Podcast or The Crimson Head Elder Podcast and there will be. You can also find us at YouTube and Twitch. Just search for Crimson Head Elder TV, where you can watch our interview and live streams with Capcom's actors and developers of Resident Evil. And for all your survival horror news and updates from the Crimson Head team, you may like to follow our Twitter account, Crimson underscore Head. So, good night, 
and stay safe when you enter the survival horror. <laughs>